Well, again, good good morning to everyone out there. It's uh, it's good to see you this morning. I uh, hope and trust you had a good week last week, a good Fourth of July. Uh, hopefully, hopefully everyone still has their fingers and toes after messing with fireworks uh, for that day, or hopefully your dog didn't run away or anything like that. Uh, if it did, I'm sorry. Um, but as Rich said, today we're moving on. Uh, we're going to begin a new series. Uh, but as he mentioned, uh, for the last three weeks, we had been in a series called A Mission for Everyone. And if you were a part of that at any, uh, any of those weeks, it really was such a special series. I know for me personally, I was challenged each of the three weeks. And I thought particularly last week was just so special to have those couples up here and to just hear their stories about how much they've sacrificed and how much they've given up to, to continue to advance the gospel across the world. And I thought it was just interesting to hear them, them talk about that and yet to say at the same time that, that regardless of the sacrifice, that regardless of the pain, it's been worth it. And it's been worth it because Jesus Christ is worth it. And so that's where we've been. But today we are again starting a new series on the book of 1 Samuel. And if you were here with us last summer, you'll remember that the last time we taught through an Old Testament book, we went through the book of Judges. And so as pastors, as a few months ago when we were talking about where to go next, where the Lord might want to take us, uh, I just said, hey guys, what if we just continue Israel's story on and just pick right back up where we left off last summer? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this amazing book called 1 Samuel. And it's filled with stories and characters that many of us know and love. But before we dive in, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we... Um, I'm just so desperate for you to speak this morning. Lord, my words mean nothing. Uh, but Lord, your words bring life and bring peace and bring joy. And so, Father, would you, through your word and through me, use, uh, use me, Lord, to, uh, to just share your truth, to share your heart this morning. And may myself and my friends leave here different than when we came in. And so, to do that, Lord, we need your grace. We need the Holy Spirit, and so we ask for those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we dive into the book, I need to do a little bit of setup work to remind us of, of where we are in the life of Israel at this point in their history. Again, if you were here with us last summer when we went through Judges, you'll remember that it was a pretty dark book. It was hard to go through. Honestly, there were stories and things described in that book that were, uh, quite frankly, discouraging. Uh, and even at times disturbing to read. There were, again, there's just some, some horrible stories in that book. But again, to set it in its context, what was going on with Israel was at this point, they, they had already been delivered uh, by God from Egypt and from the slavery in Egypt. They had already wandered through the desert for those 40 years. And they had finally made it into the promised land. Through Joshua, they had begun to conquer some of those nations there and to, to inherit the land. And we don't really have time this morning to lay out and to justify why those wars that they fought and why uh, the land that they inherited was, was just, why those wars were just, other than just to simply say you need to know that, that those nations that they fought and destroyed, those were extremely wicked nations. This was not the case of, of the school bully beating up uh, the little, you know, nerdy guy and taking his lunch money. No, it'd almost be like the nerdy, the nerdy guy beating up the bully. And so again, don't, don't have in your mind here that, you know, this, 
big, strong nation Israel was just beating up these little guys. No, these, I mean, most of the time Israel didn't even have weapons when they went into these battles. Um, But the other thing, again, to remember is that these were wicked nations. And the Lord had given these nations over 400 years to repent of their wickedness, but they never did. And so, after patiently waiting for 400 years, God began to use Israel to punish and to judge them. And in that punishment, God told Israel to make sure that they destroyed all of the nations in the promised land. They were not to let any of them remain. And yet, when we read the first couple chapters of Judges, we realize that Israel didn't do that. They didn't obey the Lord. They were unfaithful. And, and one of the main reasons God wanted them to destroy and to drive out these nations is because he knew if Israel didn't, that they would begin to worship these, these nations' false gods. They would begin to intermingle and interact with them, and again, in such a way that they would adopt their practices and the worship of these gods. And so, because Israel didn't drive them out, that's exactly what happens. And again, if you were here with us last summer, you'll remember the devastating effects of what happens when God's people begin to worship and to serve other gods rather than the true God, Yahweh. And so early on in the book of Judges in chapter 2, we get a summary of what was going on with them. And so let me just read this passage here to help remind us of of what these days were like. And so in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says this. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal or Baal. You, you pick. I think the correct one's Baal. But anyway, uh, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal in the images of Asheroth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to the raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around. And they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and he rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. And so again, in the book of Judges, we see God, out of his compassion and out of his faithfulness, he would raise up judges to save Israel. And yet, if you remember, many of those judges were messed up themselves. In fact, as the book uh, progressed, you, they, they just seemed to get worse and worse. And so the book really ends on a depressing note, but there's this one little phrase that's mentioned twice at the end of the book. And in fact, it's the last words of the book, and it leaves you with some glimmer of hope. And the phrase is this, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so when you read that phrase, you're left thinking two things. 
Number one, you're thinking, wow, things get really messed up. Things get really screwed up in our world when people do what's right in their own eyes. When mankind begins to define real or morality for itself, when it begins to say this is right and, and this is wrong, things get really messed up. The second thing you realize when you read that phrase is, is you just begin to think, just maybe, just maybe if we had a king, things would be different. And so you're left with this anticipation, this, this longing for a king. And so that's how the book of Judges ends. And so now that brings us, that catches us up to where we're at now, starting with 1 Samuel chapter 1. And so if you want to follow along, it's on page 225 in our pew Bibles. Um, this morning we're going to try to cover all of chapter 1 and half of chapter 2. And so I'm not going to have a stand and read the text this morning because... I love you, and you might pass out from standing for that long, and we need to save time. So, I really want to encourage you to, to pick a Bible up and to follow along, because I'm not even going to have it on the screen, because it's so long. But as we go through this, these first couple chapters this morning, we're going to begin to learn about a woman named Hannah. And in this passage, we're going to see three things from Hannah's life. We're going to see, number one, Hannah's problem, number two, Hannah's prayer, and then lastly, we're going to see Hannah's praise. So again, her problem, her prayer, and her praise. But starting with Hannah's problem, look at verse 1 and chapter 1. We read this. There was a certain man of Ramath Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and a Paphrite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests to the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay, so the book starts out and we're told about this man named Elkanah. And we find out right away that he has two wives. The name of the one is Hannah, which uh, interestingly, her name means favored. The name of the second wife is Peninnah, which means fruitful. Now, most likely what happened was Elkanah married Hannah. She was his first wife. But, but after years of, of not getting pregnant, he then married a second wife named Peninnah. Now, you need to understand something. This is a little bit of a tangent and a side note, but I think it's important. You need to understand that, that nowhere in the scriptures does the Bible affirm or support polygamy. In fact, every time you read a story about a family in the Bible where polygamy has taken place, when you begin to read that story, you realize that everyone in the family is miserable. You see it happen in the life of Abraham. You see it happen in the life of Jacob, and you certainly see it here. And so just because the Bible doesn't come out and explicitly condemn polygamy, if you begin to read those stories carefully in the scriptures, 
it becomes obvious that the biblical authors are intentionally showing you through the lives of these families that polygamy is in no way God's ideal or even his design for marriage. And so I say all that to say, don't let, you know, secular people or even Mormons for that matter, try to convince you that the Bible supports polygamy because it doesn't. Okay, again, that was just a little tangent. You can, that one's uh, just so you can talk to your Mormon neighbor next week. Um, So again, getting back to the story. We have this woman named Hannah. Her name means favored, yet she's barren. She's unable to have children. And I'm sure given the size of our church that there are some of you in this room who can relate to the pain and the struggle that, that comes with not being able to have children. And it's devastating in our day, and it was certainly devastating in their day. In fact, in their day, children were a key component to the family's economic success. Whereas today, children are seen much more as a financial liability rather than the key to our financial success. You see, by and large, they were an agrarian society, which meant that the more children you had, the more workers you had for your fields, the the more hands you had on deck for your farm. And therefore, because of that, your income stream was tied to your kids. But not only that, they didn't have 401ks and retirement homes and things like that. And so having children was also a part of your future security. They were able to help provide for you when you got old and and take care of you physically as you aged. But not only that, that all of that would be bad enough. But but as some have pointed out, specifically for Israelites, there was an added level of embarrassment and shame that came along with barrenness. And that's because in Genesis 3.15, God had promised that he would crush the head of Satan through the woman's offspring. He also promised in Genesis 22 to to Abraham that that through his offspring, that they would be as numerous as the sand on on the seashore and that that offspring would overcome their enemies and that through that offspring, they would be a blessing into the entire world. And so if you were a woman living in Israel and you were barren, there was a very real sense in which you felt you were missing out on the purposes and the plans of God. And so for a woman named Hannah to have a name that meant favored, and yet to have your life play out the way that it has, it had to be deeply painful. But not only that, to have your husband then marry another woman simply because you couldn't have kids, and to marry a woman who, to add insult to injury, had a name which meant fruitful, all of that together had to be unbearable. And again, all of that together would would be enough. It would be enough pain, enough uh, situation to be unbearable. And yet, if that wasn't bad enough, we find out in verse 6 that this, that Peninnah, her rival, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And then in verse 7, it says this, it says, So this went on year by year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord... Peninnah used to provoke her. So this Peninnah lady is one nasty woman. And that is why you and I in the history of the world have never uh, been at a baby dedication or uh, at a nursery and met little baby Peninnah, right? Because moms and dads just would not do that. It wouldn't be right. And so this is Hannah's problem. Her name means favored, yet she appears to be anything but favored. She's barren. And we're even told in the passage that her barrenness is from the Lord. 
But not only that, she's in a difficult marriage and family situation with this nasty woman. And so this seems to have been going on for some time. And we're told that that this time when they went up to Shiloh to worship, with all of this going on, with all of the horrible things that this woman was saying, that, that again, it's been piling on year after year. And so it seems like things kind of come to a head here. And so at the end of verse 7, we're told that Hannah wept and that she could not eat. And so what does Hannah do with all of this hopelessness, with this despair? What does Hannah do with her problem? Well, that leads us to the second thing we see in this passage, and that is this, Hannah's prayer. Look back down at verse 9. It says this. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart and only her lips moved. And her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, he said, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So as we've already said, or we've already been told, Hannah has been being bombarded by this Penina lady. And she's been, it's been so bad that she's to the point where she's crying and she's unable to eat. As well, in verse 8, we're told that, that her husband tries to cheer her up by appealing to her that, that, he, that himself and, and his love was, it should have been worth more than ten sons. And so with all of this pain and, and with this problem, Hannah could, she could turn inward and, and just get really bitter towards everyone. She could get bitter towards Peninnah for all of her meanness. She could get bitter towards her husband for marrying Peninnah in the first place. Or she could turn and get, uh, go inward and get bitter towards God for, for allowing her to, to be barren and for allowing this, this woman to, to constantly harass her. And so she could turn inward and get bitter. She could also turn outward. She could turn towards her husband for comfort and find meaning and identity in him. I mean, he clearly loves her. He wants to ease her pain. He wants to, to take some of that on for himself. And so she could turn outward and just say, you know what? I'm just going to embrace this and embrace my husband's love and and just find my meaning and identity in him. And so she could do that. But what does Hannah do? Well, again, verse nine says that Hannah rose Uh, and the the NIV, it says that she stood up. Now, that's just not some random detail. Some some commentators have pointed out that in the Hebrew, what's being communicated here is that Hannah, by standing up, by rising from her seat, she is making a decisive decision. 
In other words, she has made up her mind as to what to do with this problem. She's not going to turn inward and get bitter. And she's not going to turn outward and run to her husband for comfort. No, Hannah is turning to God. So she gets up from the table and she begins to walk. And and she just begins to pour out her heart to the Lord. And she doesn't hold back in any way. I mean, verse 10 tells us that she's deeply distressed. And she's weeping bitterly. In other words, Hannah is at the end of her rope. She's to the point where she just can't take it anymore. In fact, she's so distraught that she's doing that ugly cry face. You know what I'm talking about? That kind where you're just crying and you don't care who's watching. And there's just that mixture of tears and snot and it's in your hair and it's on your hands and it's on your clothes, but you don't care. And so that's where Hannah's at. She's opened the floodgates before the Lord. We're told in verse 9 that Eli the priest is watching her. And then in verse 12, it says that he sees her mouth moving, but he doesn't hear any words. And so in verse 14, he approaches her and he's like, like, come on, lady, what are you doing showing up drunk to church again? When are you going to put away your booze and your alcohol and get rid of it? And Hannah's like, no, no, you got it wrong. I'm not drunk, drunk, but rather I am so full of anxiety and grief and sorrow that I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And so, no, Eli, don't think that I'm some worthless woman because I'm not. And so Eli's like, okay, and he gives her a blessing. But I think it's interesting to note that he automatically assumed that she was drunk. And I think even that detail gives us a glimpse as to what the spiritual climate was like during these days. Again, we have to remember that that this is during the days of the judges. and, And what we saw when we went through that book is that most Israelites were not following and trusting in God. And so honestly, Eli probably just defaulted into thinking that because the spiritual climate was so poor. I want to take a few moments here and look at how she prayed, because I think there are some things that you and I can learn from her in regards to our own prayer lives. And the first thing that I think to notice is just very simply the fact that she prayed. Again, as we've already said, she could have turned inwards towards herself or she could have turned outward to others. And yet instead, she goes to God. And I just think if you and I, if we're going to make it in this Christian life, we're going to have to learn how to do the same. You know, Chris taught on prayer a few months ago when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things he mentioned in that message was that as a church, we are weak in this area of prayer. Both in our private prayer lives, as well as our our corporate times together. I don't know if you remember, but he rebuked all of us for our, our attendance at the corporate prayer times. In other words, what I think, and after saying that, he just said, I don't get it. I just don't get how as individuals and how as a church we've not made prayer central. I think what he was saying is this, I don't get how you expect you're going to make it or how this church is going to make it if we don't pray, if we don't pray. You see, prayer, it's an ultimate acknowledgement to yourself, to others, and to God that you realize this. When we pray, what we're doing is we're saying we realize we're not God. It's an expression of dependence on someone greater than yourself. Prayer is an act of humility. It's a cry for help. And what we see here in this passage is this, that Hannah got that. She was not embarrassed or afraid to acknowledge her need and her dependency on God. And guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. 
with the way that things are going in our world and in our culture, if you and I, if we don't get this figured out, if we don't become people who are desperate with our dependency on God through prayer, then I'm not sure some of us are going to make it. I'm not saying that you're not going to be a Christian or that this church won't exist. But what I am saying is that our fruitfulness and our faithfulness will be diminished, if not downright be demolished, if we don't become people of prayer. And I don't say that as some expert who has it all figured out, but, but the reality is, is I have grown in my prayer life. And I've grown in my acknowledgement of my need and my dependency on God. And listen, the truth is, is, is this, that pain and problems are going to arise in our life. And when they come, we can either run to others, we can run to friends, we can run to counselors, we can run to self-help books, or we can run to things like our iPhones or Netflix to be distracted with, or we can run to God. And so that's the first thing to notice. But not only that, look at how she prays and what she prays. How does she pray? Well, we're told that she, she pours out her heart before the Lord. We're told that she takes her anxiety, her grief, and she takes it to God. We're told that she's weeping bitterly, and so she's not holding back her emotions in any way. Again, she's kind of letting it all hang out here before the Lord. And I know for some of us, the, the, the thought of praying like that is, is perhaps embarrassing, or, or perhaps it even seems inappropriate. I think for some of us to think that, that, that for us to pray like that, that God couldn't handle our messiness, that he couldn't handle our emotions. And yet the truth is, God is the only one who can handle it. You see, your spouse, your children, your friends, even your paid counselor can't handle your pain, sorrow, grief and anxieties. They can't handle it. If you try to put that on them, you will crush them. You will wear them out. But the good news this morning is, is, is this, that God can handle them. And not only can he handle them, but he invites us to bring those things to himself. It says in Psalm 62, 8, this, it says, trust in him at all times. Trust him when things are good. Trust him when things are bad. Trust him at all times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. It says in Psalm 34, 4, this, it says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. You see, when we dig into the book of Psalms, the, the Bible's prayer book, we begin to realize that, that not only is it okay to grieve and to come to God with our fears and our anxieties, but it's okay to do that in a way that's messy and raw. In a way where we don't hold back. Like, guys, do you realize that it's okay to be mad and frustrated at God? And that it's okay to tell him those things in prayer? To say, God, I don't know why you're doing this in my life and I'm mad at you. I don't even want to talk to you. I don't even want to pray right now. I'm just so frustrated. It's okay to pray like that. We see it. In the book of Psalms. I mean, we're not told everything that Hannah prayed here in chapter one. But you can just, I, I would bet money that she expressed some of that anger and confusion and that hurt to the Lord about how he had treated her. 
how he had been the cause of her barrenness. How he had allowed her to be ridiculed by Peninnah year after year. You see, it was so freeing for me in my Christian walk when I realized that I could pray like that. And to realize not only can I pray like that, but I should. You see, again, only God can take your raw, unfiltered emotion, your anger and your bitterness, bitterness and even your grief. Only he can take those things and begin to help you through them. And again, if we're going to make it in this Christian life, we're going to have to learn to pray like this. All of us in this room, I am sure, have already had moments of pain and grief in our life. Some of us, some really major grief, some unbearable grief. Others, maybe, maybe my, more minor things. Maybe some seemingly insignificant moments of grief and loss. And yet one thing that I have learned this year is this, that, that every loss in our life demands to be grieved before the Lord. Whether it's the loss of your favorite pen or your favorite person. I think there's some of you in this room who need to take some time to grieve before the Lord the, 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 the loss of your childhood. The divorce of your parents. Many things. The, 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 the loss of, of life just not turning out the way that you had hoped. That career that, that didn't pan out the way that you had dreamed of. That kid who, who didn't follow the Lord like you had hoped. And you need to take those, those losses and those griefs before the Lord. And, and the reason is this. You see, when we don't take the time to grieve our losses before the Lord, what we do in that moment is we allow space in our hearts for doubt and unbelief to rise up. We allow space for the devil to begin to whisper into our ears, to begin to whisper, see, I told you that he's not good. See, guys, I told you that you can't trust him. And yet when we take those moments to grieve before our father, like Hannah did, God meets us in that place and he begins to walk us through it. He begins to bring us out on the other side. One commentator said it like this. He said this. Prayer is not a technique we need to master. It's a pouring out your soul to the Lord. One of the main reasons we do not pray more is that we do not feel the need to pray. We think that we can manage without God and so our prayers end up a duty to perform. Just an option in our busy day. Prayer was not a duty or an option for Hannah. She did not get up from the meal because she realized that she had not had a quiet time that day. It was the cry of an anguished soul. He continues on. He says this. He says. The main image that Jesus gives us of prayer. Is of a child asking her father for help. And three year olds do not ask for things. In a quiet and contemplative way. They insist. They shout. They clamor. They persist. There are children who are quiet. If a child cries and no one ever comes. Then they eventually stop crying. This is so devastating. He says, there are orphanages where children have been neglected to the point where an eerie silence hangs over the dormitories. The point is this. The cry of a child is a cry of faith. It reflects the belief that there is someone out there who hears them and responds to them. And so my question for you this morning is this. Have you become like one of those orphans? Have you become silent in your prayer life? 
Or do you, like a three-year-old child who has a good father, do you still cry out because you believe there is someone out there who cares and who hears and who responds? And so this is how Hannah prays. She's dependent. Her cries, her prayers are real. They're raw. And you and I are invited to do the same. But not only that, look at what she prays. In verse 11, it says this. And she vowed a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And so in her prayer, she makes a vow to the Lord. It's, it's evident based on what she says that, that she tells God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you uh, as a Nazarite which was a way to dedicate your child and to set them apart for the Lord. Again, we saw this in the book of Judges with Samson. And if you, but if you remember back, he basically violated his Nazarite vow in every way imaginable. And so the author of 1 Samuel here, he wants you to remember that. He wants you to begin to, to draw some comparison and some contrasting between Samuel and Samson. But not only that, one thing that strikes me about her prayer is that she's very specific. I mean, she just comes right out and she asks God for a son. She doesn't beat around the bush. I mean, she's specific enough to say, Lord, give me a son, not just give me a child. And I think it's good for you and I to be reminded that it's okay to pray specific prayers. We don't have to pray those kind of generic prayers where it's hard to know whether or not they got answered. To be like, well, you know, I I mean, the way that I said it, it could have. I mean, I guess he could have done it or no, pray bold and specific prayers. Now, when you do that, he may not give you what you ask for, but it's not because that he can't. And it's not because you were specific, but it's because he has a greater purpose in mind. And I just, I was thinking about this week. I just, I picture one day just being in heaven and, and sitting down with the Lord and him walking me through different prayers in my life and saying, you know, Nick, I didn't answer that one because I had something greater for you. Or looking at this one and saying, man, when you prayed that, Nick, I just wish you would have kept going. I wish you would have been more specific because I was ready to just pour out heaven onto that prayer. But you held back. You stopped short. You stopped trusting. You, you didn't believe that I would do it. And I just, I'm looking forward to that day of, of just hearing about why he didn't answer this prayer. But I think it's because he has a greater purpose in mind. Again, I want us to understand here that it's okay to be specific in our prayers. In other words, it's okay to put the Lord on the hook. To say, God, if you don't do this, then it's going to be obvious that you didn't do this. So just ask him. I mean, we're told, we're invited to do this. We, we covered this in the Sermon on the Mount, but Matthew 7, 7 says this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and to the, the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So be desperate. Be dependent. Pray raw prayers and don't be afraid to be specific. But one last thing to know here. Verse 18 tells us this. That after she was done praying, she went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. In other words, what that's telling us is that she really prayed. 
Again, I don't know if you remember back to that message Chris gave on prayer, but, but one of the things he said is this, that, that one of the ways you know that you're not truly praying to God, but rather just praying faith and faith is how he talked about it. One of the ways you know that you're doing that is when you're done praying, your anxious thoughts and heart remain. Even when you're done praying. So in other words, what he's saying is this, that, that when we pray faith and faith, we have not in that moment come to God as a good father. But instead, we've been praying, or, or rather, what we've been doing is talking to ourselves. We've just been spending time worrying about our problems instead of giving them over to Him. Or we've been trying to manipulate Him and, and treating prayer like it's some magical formula that if we just get it just right, then it will be answered. And yet, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is a powerful encounter with a loving, sovereign Father. And therefore, when we're done praying, we should be able to, like Hannah, get up, go eat, and stop being anxious and sad. Isn't that what Philippians 4 tells us? It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And when you do that, the peace of God, which which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And Hannah got to experience that. She had peace from God. And I think it's interesting to note that she had the peace before the Lord answered the prayer. She had the peace before she became pregnant. But let's keep going here. Look at verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah and her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition that I made to him, Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So the Lord hears Hannah's prayer. He responds. He blesses her with a son. She waits a couple years until he is weaned, maybe between the ages of three and five. And then she fulfills her vow. She brings him to Shiloh to the Lord. And now this brings us to the last thing that we see in Hannah's life, and that's her praise. Uh, Let's finish out the story. Look at uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, 
But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash sheep to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked ones shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So again, the Lord has answered Hannah's prayer and now she has responded in praise. She has responded to the Lord by singing a new song to him. And I think it's important that we remember to do that, that when the Lord answers our prayers, to to remember to turn back to him and say, thank you. To say, Lord, I praise you and honor you that you are a God who hears our prayers and responds. And this, it's a really cool song that she sings. And we don't really have time to go into it this morning. But, but there's all of this warrior and military language in it about Yahweh defeating his enemies. And about how Yahweh turns everything upside down. He, he feeds the hungry. He gives children to the barren. He helps the poor. But then she ends her song with this very interesting line in verse 10. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And one commentator talking about this verse said this. He said, this may not strike you as particularly remarkable, but it's actually a big surprise. Because at this point in the story, there is no king in Israel. What Hannah's song says is this. God's king is coming, and when he does, he will turn the world upside down. And that directs our attention forward in the story. And so as we go on in the weeks and months ahead through the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that God does have a king in mind. He's going to raise up a king who will deliver Israel from her enemies, and his name's David. And a large portion of this book is dedicated to telling his story. And yet, as we all know, Even he was not the king that Israel or even the world needed. No, we needed a greater king. We needed a king who would ultimately turn things upside down. Like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we we needed Jesus. We needed the one who could defeat our ultimate enemy, which was sin and death. And he did that through the cross and through his resurrection. And actually, Nick, you and the band can go ahead and come on up. You see, as a body here in a moment, we're going to remember this greater David. We're going to remember the great victory that he accomplished for us at the cross. We're going to do that by taking the Lord's Supper. You see, guys, when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we remember his broken body and his blood that was poured out for us. We remember that because he died, we can live. We remember that because he was broken, we can now become whole. And so I'm going to pray, and then the ushers are going to come down and release you row by row. And you can grab the bread and grab the cup and, and go back to your seat. And whenever you feel ready, whenever you feel led, you can take, take those things. But before they do, let me close this with prayer. Father, we, we thank you for this story in your word. 
And we thank you that you're the God of the impossible. You take our hopelessness. You take our pain and you, Lord, you begin to walk us through it. Lord, thank you that you've invited us to come to you with the things in our lives that are difficult. You've promised to take them, to bear that weight and that responsibility, to take the yoke off of our shoulders and put it onto you. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that today would be a turning point in the lives of myself and the lives of my friends where we would become men and women of prayer. Men and women who recognize our dependency and our need for you and who begin to just pour out our souls before the Lord, knowing that you'll meet us there. And so, God, would you do that? Lord, and as always, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the bread and the cup that represents his blood and his body that we can now Stand before you, Lord, perfect. Stand before you, Lord, unashamed, unafraid. Because the punishment has been taken for us, Lord. And now all there's left is approval. All that's left is grace and love. And so, Lord, help us to remember that this morning through communion. We thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.